this morning we're starting a four-week sermon series through the book of Jonah. So if you have a Bible, I dare you to find it. <laughs> um, it's near the very back of the Old Testament. You, you, you know that you're getting close when you get to the books that sound like Star Wars characters. Obadiah, Nahum, Chewbacca, Obi-Wan. I'm clearly stalling for you. There's only so far I can go, so I, I hope you're there. All right, so now what we need to know at the outset is that the book of Jonah is unlike any other book in the Bible, um, especially when it comes to what's called the prophetic books. So three main differences. Uh, first thing, Jonah, the book of Jonah, is written in a different form. Okay, so it starts out pretty standard. Look at verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Okay, and, and just for comparison, flip over a page or so to the next book of the Bible, Micah. And look at verse 1 there. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moraseth. Okay, same formula. This is how prophetic books begin. Joel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Amos, they all do the same thing. It's sort of a tip of the hat to the reader or to the listener uh, that gets us in on what kind of literature we're looking at here. Jonah is a prophetic book. It's bunched in with the rest of them. But apart from that, Jonah is incredibly unique because once you get, the, once you get past the formula in, in Micah, I hope you're still there, what happens visually? Like all the words switch to poetic form, right? It's like that for the rest of the book. Uh, standard prophetic literature. And again, you'll see the same thing in Isaiah or in Joel. But in Jonah, flip back there, you get the formula at the beginning, the word of the Lord, and then what? Paragraphs. It reads like a short story. There aren't a bunch of oracles or thus saith the Lord's. No, it starts telling the story. And with the exception of chapter 2 in Jonah, it stays like that till the end. Okay, so that's the first difference. The book of Jonah is in a different form than the other prophetic books. It's not a list of oracles. It's a story. Second, the book of Jonah isn't really about Israel. And this is weird because the prophets in the Old Testament were God's mouthpieces to Israel. When God wanted to say something to Israel, his, his normal course of action was, was not to speak from a cloud. He did that a couple times. But to tell the prophets and then get them to announce his message, to relay his message to the people of Israel. And, and one of the things we need to understand is that the prophets weren't fortune tellers. Sometimes they gave insights into the future, but the vast majority of their messages were focused on the present. So it's better to think of them, of the prophets, as foretellers rather than foretellers. Prophets told it like it was. Uh, they were the cold, hard truth tellers 
to keep Israel on the straight and narrow. But the book of Jonah deviates from this. It's not about Israel. In fact, Jonah, and I I guess his father, Amittai, if we want to get really technical here, they're the only Israelites in the whole story. The word Israel is not even mentioned. Neither is Jerusalem. And that's because it's not about Israel. Not explicitly. It's about about Nineveh, this foreign city uh, that God's threatening to destroy. You see verse 2? Arise, go to Nineveh, not Jerusalem, not Bethlehem, but Nineveh, really far away, that great city, and call out against it. No other prophetic book does this. And it makes you wonder why Jonah is in the Hebrew Scriptures to begin with. Because it really isn't about Israel. And third and finally, and look, don't get too excited, people. I am going to preach a sermon after this, okay? So... (laughs) Third and finally, uh, the book of Jonah isn't even really about Nineveh. I lied. It's about Jonah himself. We don't get this type of thing with any other prophet in the prophetic books. Okay, you get some biographical data on Elijah and Elisha, but those are in a different section of the Bible called the historical books, where it's basically all story and narrative. And so they kind of fit into that. But in these prophetic books, we don't get any other information about the other prophets like we get on Jonah. I mean, how much do we know about Joel, pop quiz, or Amos, or Isaiah, or Obadiah? Virtually nothing. But how much do we know about Jonah? (laughs) Probably more than he would prefer, right? So the book of Jonah is about Jonah. It's about a rebellious prophet, a rebellious prophet who hates God for loving his enemies. It's about a person who gives himself a pass for all his sins, but doesn't really want God to forgive other people, the really bad people, especially the ones who've done bad things to him. Right? He wants them to rot in hell and get what they deserve. So this is a book about, look, about a pretty cruel person. It's about Jonah himself. But of course, it isn't just about Jonah. It's about us. It's about what's darkest and most sinister in us. It's a mirror. And, you know, maybe it's for that reason that the people of Israel included this story, not just in their scriptures, but in the prophetic section of their scriptures, because it tells it like it is. It reveals something that's true to us. It reveals something to us about God, and it reveals something to us about ourselves. And so this morning, I I want us to notice three things in chapter 1, that God is revealing to us. I want us to notice the heart of our calling, the nature of our rebellion, and the depth of God's mercy. The heart of our calling, the nature of our rebellion, and the depth of God's mercy. So first, the heart of our calling. And I so wish we all had Hebrew goggles, um, because the very first word of the book, now, 
should actually be translated and. So just imagine that. And the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. It indicates um, continuity, right? With what's gone before, doesn't it? It's like a sequel or a saga. Jack Bauer's voice comes to mind previously on 24. (laughs) So what's the previous episode? What's the book of Jonah continuing? It's continuing the story of the Bible. The story of God reclaiming Israel, (laughs) the world, redeeming all of creation into a place where his blessing can flow freely and the knowledge of him, as it says, uh, covers the earth like the waters cover the sea. In particular, it's continuing the story of the nation of Israel, the descendants of Abraham. So turn with me just for a moment to the very first book of the Bible, Genesis, and find chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. This is the very beginning of Israel. This is the charter through one man, Abraham. And this is where God makes promises to the nation of Israel and tells them their purpose, their calling, their mission. So listen, starting at verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. He's, he's talking about Israel. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, in you, Israel, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All the families of the earth shall be blessed. So this is Israel's calling. It's to extend God's blessing to all the families of the earth, all the nations, all the cities, all the peoples. Now flip back over to Jonah. I really hope you kept your place. (laughs) Flip back over to Jonah chapter 1 and look at verse 2. Arise, go. Go. Just like God told Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, now he's telling Jonah, arise, go, To those nations, (laughs) like without exception, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it for their evil has come up before me. So here's what we need to know about Nineveh. It was the capital of the Assyrian Empire, and the Assyrian Empire was hands down the most brutal, ruthless empire in the entire ancient world. That's not hyperbole. Like everybody in the ancient world wanted the Assyrians to die a slow and painful death because the Assyrians were terrible people. They were terrorists with absolutely zero dignity. And honestly, I'm not going to share the details because the torture methods that they used were so violent, so disturbing, that it makes Nazi Germany look humane. But for Israel, things were even more personal. The Assyrians had wiped out Israel's northern kingdom. They killed tens of thousands of people 
and took the rest into captivity. Now, on the one hand, what zealous Israelite prophet like wouldn't want this job? <laughs> it'd be terrifying. It, 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 honestly, it'd probably be a lot like a Jew going to Berlin in the 1930s and saying, down with the Third Reich. Okay, that's, ter- that's terrifying. But if you were an Israelite prophet, and let's just say you knew, you knew God was with you and that you were 100% protected and speaking his very word to these enemies of his, like, isn't this the dream job? This would be vengeance. This would be the greatest I told you so moment in all of Israel's history. Hey, Ninevites, right? You're dead meat. And then you run away. <laughs> so, sounds thrilling. Sounds righteous. Sounds heroic. Remember Jonah? Dude who just told the Ninevites. But then Jonah gets to thinking, if God is so intent on destroying these people, why doesn't he just do it already? Like, why the warning? And then it dawns on him that God is ruining his party. God is giving them a last chance. God wants them to repent. God wants to spare them and forgive them and show mercy to them and, dare I say, bless them, the Ninevites. And worst of all, God wants Jonah to help them. This is what he calls Jonah to do. To forgive and open up the doors of God's mercy to the people who've hurt him and his people. And who knows, maybe people from his family. Jonah was from northern Israel. It's what Nadine Collier, um, the daughter of 70-year-old Ethel Lance, said to her mother's killer, Dylan Roof, in Charleston. I forgive you. I forgive you. You took something very precious from me. I will never talk to her again. I will never, ever hold her again. But I forgive you and have mercy on your soul. This kind of thing is at the very heart of our calling as Christians. As spiritual descendants of Abraham and followers of the Lord Jesus, the heart of our calling is to extend mercy and forgiveness. It's to imitate God who is full of mercy and who's been so merciful to us. And it's to restore God's blessing to people who don't deserve it and guess what, sometimes don't even ask for it. You and I are called by God to continue the story of his mercy to the world. And like Aubrey said earlier, it begins with the ones you live with. The heart of our calling is mercy and forgiveness. That's the first thing this book reveals to us right off the bat. Second, it also reveals to us the nature of our rebellion. Nature of our rebellion. Look at what Jonah does in verse 3. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. 
Now, where was Tarshish? Not next door. <laughs> uh, not just on the other side of the border, but modern-day Spain, okay? The opposite end of the Mediterranean Sea. At that time, it was the furthest edge, farthest, furthest, farthest edge of the entire known world. Jonah could not have fled any farther. Farther. <laughs> Nineveh was east. Tarshish was as west as one could possibly go. And notice, he's fleeing from the presence of the Lord. The common way of referring to the temple in Jerusalem. The place where God's glory dwelled with his people. Jonah's trying to get away from that. And look, this isn't just some, I need some space right now language. This isn't like, I, I need a breather. This is breakup language. This is, uh, Jonah is so put out with God, so angry, so frustrated with him, that he wants to walk away from his faith, from his heritage altogether. He's like the prodigal son. He's fleeing to a distant land, not just to live it up with people who can't tell his daddy on him, but to remove himself, finally, from the family altogether, never to make contact again. Jonah is done. God, it's so interesting how the narrative puts this. You know, the Bible is such sophisticated literature. God tells Jonah in verse 2 to arise, to, to get up and go. But Jonah rose to go down. Look how many times that phrase is used here. Verse 3, Jonah went down to Joppa, found a ship going to Tarshish. So he, so he paid the fare and went down into it. And now in the middle of verse 5, but Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down <laughs> and was fast asleep. Now, I recently heard someone put it like this. Jonah thinks he's running for his life, but really he's running from his life. You see, Jonah had a vision in his mind of what kind of prophet he wanted to be. He wanted to be the kind that wore the sheriff's badge and brought the bad guys to justice and, and built up the nation of Israel and restored everybody's fortunes. But now God gives him this sissy mission of calling Israel's sworn enemies to repentance and of extending his mercy and forgiveness to them. And Jonah says, no. And he runs. And it's like that with us. Like, we have our own vision of how our life should be, what we want to do with our life, what kind of house we want to live in, where we want to work, what kind of person we want to end up being. But God has his own vision for our lives too. And when those two visions conflict, we rebel against him. We say no, and we run. And maybe that looks like leaving the church for a while kind of stepping out quietly, maybe not coming so often. Or maybe it looks like staying in church, 
but falling asleep spiritually. Going through the motions, praying the prayers, listening to the sermons, on cruise control, coming to the table. All the while, we're asleep to the vibrant, abundant relationship that God wants to have with us. This too is rebellion of the sophisticated sort. It's a running away, a saying no to God. It's a refusal to be open to the bigger thing God wants to do in your life, even in your suffering. You think you're running for your life, but really you're running from your life. The abundant life that God has been offering to his children since day one. A life rooted in his love and mercy. A life on mission to bless the world. When you live to bless yourself, you're running toward your own hell. You're running toward your own destruction, your own misery, your own grief. And yet, even when we choose to go down, 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 like Jonah, even here, God finds us. So what does Psalm 139 say? Just listen, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall uphold me. It's when we're at rock bottom, because we know that Jonah goes down even further, doesn't he? That we can experience the depth of God's mercy. The depth of God's mercy. And in Jonah's case, it's a severe mercy. Jonah runs, but God will not let him go. Look at verse 4. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Now, God does a lot of stuff in the book of Jonah. He, um, at the end of this chapter, he appoints, that's the word I think that's used, he appoints a fish to swallow Jonah. Uh, in chapter 4, he causes a plant to grow over Jonah. Then he appoints a worm to eat that same plant. But not this time. That's, none of those verbs are used here. This time, God hurls a strong wind, a hurricane, at Jonah. It's the same word uh, for a soldier launching, throwing a weapon, a spear or a stone to destroy. And so panic ensues on the deck, and the crew is scrambling, but Jonah's fast asleep. It's a stunning detail, isn't it? He has refused his mission, and now he is refusing even to contemplate this storm. He refuses to see it except as a natural phenomenon that he can't do anything about. He will not see in it God's act, God's appeal, God's pointer. He prefers to know nothing about it. Jonah is like somebody too depressed to get out of bed. 
I mean, what else is there to do when you're fleeing from the God who made heaven and earth and even your very life? What's there to do? You hide as far down in the depths of your own obliviousness as possible. Others get drunk or take drugs or commit suicide. Jonah descends as deep into darkness as he possibly can, away from the light of day and far away from any kind of awareness. Until the captain, the the pagan captain, rouses him in verse 6. Look closely at this, okay? Verse 6, what do you mean, you sleeper? I mean, like, what are you thinking? Arise. Call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Arise. Sound familiar? It's exactly what God told Jonah to do at the very beginning. This is God rousing Jonah from his slumber, meeting him in his rebellion. Come on, Jonah. Get up. Come to me. Call out to me. Get up. Arise. And it's so hard to hear this story and not think of our gospel reading, isn't it? That's because you're not supposed to not think about the gospel reading. Jesus is asleep on the boat in the storm. But it's not the sleep of despair, right? It's the sleep of trust. Jesus was headed ultimately to the cross, his own Nineveh, the unthinkable. But even in this, he could sleep peacefully, trusting God. And the disciples rouse him and say what? We're perishing. Or in Mark's gospel, don't you care that we are perishing? Don't you care? And that's what the captain, the pagan captain, representing here all the nations of the world who don't know God, that's what the captain is asking. Jonah, don't you care that we're perishing? And Jonah doesn't care. That's why he's running. So the sailors cast lots. Falls on Jonah. Surprise. And when they ask him what to do, he says, kill me. He says in verse 12, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. (laughs) Now that might seem noble at first, like a self-sacrificial thing. But what's really going on? Jonah is still resisting God. Like, he'd rather die than go to Nineveh. He'd rather die than see his enemies reconciled to God. No way I'm doing that. And so they throw Jonah into the water and the sea calms. But the suicide mission doesn't work. The gun jams. The rope breaks. Verse 18, the Lord (coughs) appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. (laughs) And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And furthermore, the sailors are saved. Like in both ways. The storm goes away. They're protected. They go home to their families. um, And and they call on the God of Israel. The, The one, remember, that the reluctant prophet had just told them about when he was being interrogated. And so in a strange, ironic twist of events, everyone in the story (laughs) receives mercy. 
The sailors are saved, and so is Jonah. Saved from himself, from his bitterness, from his hardness of heart. You see, unless Jonah can see his own sin and see himself as living wholly by the mercy of God, he'll never, ever understand how God can be merciful to evil people and still be just and faithful. The story of Jonah, with all of its twists and turns, is about how God takes Jonah, sometimes by the hand, other times by the scruff of the neck, to show him these things. But last thing, it's all done in love. Let me show you. Did you know that the name Jonah means dove? It's a name for someone you love. The beloved in the Song of Solomon is called my dove. It's an incredibly endearing term. She is praised for the loveliness of her dove eyes. And this is what God names Jonah. His dove. And this is the name God gives you too in baptism. You are my beloved son or daughter. You are my dove. I am well pleased with you. Maybe you're running from God right now. Or maybe you're in the storm that God has sent. The very thing God is using to show you in a severe way his mercy and bring you back into his arms. Do not forget that through all your troubles and failings, all your flight and disobedience, all your rebelling and resisting, you are the beloved of God. You are God's dove, the recipient of his incredible mercy in Christ. Would God sink the ship that holds the apple of his eye? No. He loves you. Remember that. Live in that. And you too will in time be able to extend that same mercy and love and blessing to others. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.